Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Everybody loves to quote scripture. I'm not sure why, because no matter the text, the minute you open your mouth to pronounce what it says, it condemns you. Sometimes in obvious ways, but more often in subtle ways that betray the depth of your ignorance like the chief priests in Matthew's Gospel. My advice? Skip the Bible memes on your profile and avoid empty words about how much you love your personal God because all of it will count against you on that day. You are better off hearing it, reciting it, and doing it. But please, don't quote it. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 41 to 44. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 416 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I have mentioned numerous times in Bible studies and recently in Homilies Rich, a point that Father Paul makes in the Rise of Scripture about the connection between the plural form of womb in Hebrew and the plural form of blood, rahamim and demim, which is the bloods, as in the moving bloods, like the moving waters when we say the floods in the English language. And the importance of this connection only becomes clear when you understand another connection between womb and the word for mercy. And those of you who speak Arabic will be immediately familiar with the connection, Al-Rahim, it's one of the 99 names of God. Each time the Quran is invoked, we hear God referred to as the merciful. It's said in the prayers of the liturgy often, when we say, Lord, have mercy, we say, Ya Rabburham. It's the same consonantal root as the word womb in Hebrew. So in Hebrew, there's a direct connection between the word for mercy and the word for womb. So you have this connection in two directions, between the bloods, which are the domain of God, because only God has hegemony over life and death on the one hand, and between the womb and mercy. Now, the point that Father Paul makes is that in birth giving, and Leviticus 12 deals with this at the beginning of the chapter, a woman sheds blood. She gives life in order to create a life. And Leviticus 
puts her under a ban for a period of time. And Father Paul explains in his book that this is because the act of motherhood, of giving birth, and I said the act of motherhood, it's a function, it's not tied necessarily to gender, because a male can function as a mother in Scripture, and we'll come to that in just a bit here when we're talking about Jesus and Psalm 22 in this section of Matthew. But the point is that in the act of giving birth, the bloods flow, and so a mother is giving life in order to create life, which is a divine act. Now, this action undermines patriarchy. It undermines the authority and the dominion of human fatherhood in the scriptural story and in the ancient world. But insofar as it elevates the status of motherhood, remember that when a mother gives birth, she's no longer just a woman. She's a mother. She becomes, for example, in the Arabic language, the mother of her child. It's a title. So Allah, the person to whom I'm married, is officially Um Nadim, the mother of Nadim, because she produced, she created a life. It's a formal title, almost presidential, because now Allah is a reference. She has given life to make life, to create life, to produce life. And this is sacrosanct and very serious, and it's something a father can't do. All of this emphasis we place on patrimony and these patriarchal kingly lines, but not a single one of them can make a baby. And that is God's last laugh on patriarchy. But so that motherhood would be kept in check, there's still this business of the Levitical Code. And we will see in any case how all of this becomes relevant as we move forward here in Matthew. There's no clearer connection between mercy and the giving of life in the crucifixion as the bloodletting of giving birth exclusive to the woman in her biological function. This biological function and the connection with this life, as you said, Father, they all fall in the domain of God. So the giving and taking of life, as well as the giving and taking of mercy, all this are divine. When the one who gives blood gives mercy, this is a piece of motherhood as well as a piece of divine action. And this is what we're really seeing come to pass here, which, as we've said multiple times, the others are incapable of. The chief priests were incapable of showing mercy or even showing a teaching of mercy to Judas when he was in despair. Pilate was incapable of showing mercy even when he knew that Jesus was innocent. These so-called rulers take life, but they can't give it. They take mercy, but they won't give it. And they are incapable, therefore, of having this divine motherly function. These characters are manifesting patriarchy. And here I'm using the word patriarchy both in the ancient sense and in the modern sense in the way that it's used pejoratively. But I want to stress as a student of Scripture, that 
The word patriarchy has nothing to do with gender. It isn't about white male power. So in that sense, I'm not using it the same way that modern people use it. If you are thinking scripturally, the patriarchy is any manifestation of human power in opposition to the throne of God. It has nothing to do with gender. It's any manifestation of coming down from the cross and ascending the chariot. It's any manifestation of asking for a king. It's any glorification of the line of Cain. From the perspective of Scripture, functionally, Glorious Steinem is part of the patriarchy. Anybody with institutional power, it doesn't matter what they are ontologically or who they are ontologically. If they wield power and station in the society, they are the man, functionally. They are the patriarchy. We are not talking about gender or identity. We are talking about function. And in this sense, God can function as a mother or function as a father in the story. When he functions as a father and he brings judgment and wrath... It's for our edification. And when he functions as a mother who protects her children or who bleeds to create life, he does so, but not without always reminding us that on a dime he will switch and function as a father so that we don't slip and relax and get comfortable. There's always this back and forth in the narrative. God can function either way, as a mother or a father. And here we're going to see in the crucifixion, Jesus manifest a motherly function. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Really? You will believe in him when he acts like Caesar. You will believe in him when he behaves like Herod. You will believe in him when he doesn't shed blood for the sake of a friend. You don't want him to give his life for his friends. You want him to save his life for himself. You want him to save his own skin. You want him to be like all of the other politicians you love so dearly. You want to bring him down to your level. Come down from the cross and be like us. It's like a bunch of dirty cops who are upset at a cop who won't take a bribe. Why won't you just take a bribe, Jesus? Why won't you join the brotherhood and just be a dirty politician like the rest of us? If you would just come down from the cross and behave like you're supposed to, then we would trust you. We can't trust you because you won't get your hands dirty. Why are you being such a stickler about the Torah? Aren't there different ways that we can interpret the law of Moses? Isn't there a way that we could interpret the law of Moses that allows you to come down from the cross and sit with us and Herod and Caesar and rule on the backs of the people? They want him to be a king in the way that they think he should be the king. People who were wagging their heads and making fun of him, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And now they're saying, if he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross. But there's this short phrase that makes me wonder. He saved others. 
These are the chief priests and the scribes and the elders who say he saved others. So in the search for false witnesses against Jesus, that Jesus is the one who's going to destroy the temple, they never wanted to enter into the testimony that Jesus saved others. But now the chief priests, scribes, and elders say he saved others. What's the salvation that Jesus already brought according to them? We don't know. Yet they admit that he saved others. Now, is it like what they think he should be able to do? Because he said himself he cannot save, meaning bringing him down from the cross. What was the salvation that Jesus brought that they think that he should be bringing to himself? It can only be the teaching. It can only be the giving of life. They admit that he performed miracles. They admit that he gave to others so that they could have life. But he can't save himself, they say. Well, this ends up as bad as the crowds because they think, like the crowds, that the point was the miracles and not the teaching. He doesn't stay true to his magical abilities to do these amazing things that make all the crowds become astonished and silent. He does the thing that makes them scratch their heads and furrow their brows in silence, which is to teach them something that they don't want to listen to. And what they need to listen to is how the mercy of God functions. They only understand the function of God that can destroy and kill, but they don't understand the function of God, which is to show mercy and give life. And I hear this all the time when people read the Old Testament. If you read Lamentations, it's sad. If you read Ezekiel, it's sad. But God always reminds the people that he had mercy on some so that they could learn and teach the next generation. There is always mercy that comes along with his judgment throughout the Old Testament. The future judgment is going to be the last judgment. But we see mercy throughout. In the scene with Judas, as I said, they were incapable of showing mercy. They were incapable of showing any compassion. And here, when it's called upon them, they can't. And they don't understand what the shedding of blood is showing regarding the mercy. Because, of course, you know, if this is the Son of God, how could God allow the Son of God to shed his blood on a cross humiliated and exposed? So their conception of God is just like the Romans. It's a reflection of Caesar. Now, you know, I was recently talking to some people about Messianic Judaism and this kind of thing, Jews for Jesus. You know, whatever somebody's background is, and if they're reading scripture, I don't have a problem. But the thing that I don't understand is, how do you take one king over another king? How do you take one religion over another religion? When whichever religion you pick, they're trying to gain power for themselves. And they say, oh, the Jews back then, the Jews back then, well, I don't know, I see a split. I see those who wanted to teach Scripture and those who wanted to teach Caesar. Being a Jew at this time did not exempt you from the fault of the Gentiles, which is believing in Caesar over God, which is believing in violence and the taking of life over the giving of life and of mercy. I thought you were going to say, I don't understand how all of these fundamentalists have the Israeli flag on their altar, but we won't go there, Dr. Benton. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. 
for he said, I am the Son of God. And of course, they are referring to Psalm 22. But the beautiful thing about Psalm 22 is that it talks about the mother's womb. It's so powerful. Listen to this text, Richard. Commit yourself to the Lord. Commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. Now, this reference to womb is a different word than rahim. It's baten. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. And the word that is translated as birth is, in fact, the word that we've been talking about that has the same consonantal root as mercy. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help me. So they are asking for a king, but in asking for a king, they are professing a psalm that is appealing to God's motherly function. God, who is in his motherly function, protective of his king, protective of those in need. Insofar as it is a motherly function, it's a function that bleeds in order to create life. So the irony of their statement is not just that they misunderstand what's going on and don't understand what the psalm is saying. It's that they are stupidly confessing that the death of Jesus Christ is to produce life. This is beautiful in this psalm because there's this play in the Hebrew, Mi Beten Maftihi, which is a play on Hebrew because you have several consonants that sound similar. From the womb, the one who gives me life. And then it says, Al Shadei Immi, but the Al and the El back then were pronounced very similarly. So it sounds like El Shaddai. It looks like El Shaddai Immi. The God of strength is my mother. So the play on the one who gives birth and the one who gives hope. Again, we have in this verse that you read in Matthew 27, in verse 43, that he said, I am the Son of God. They slander him again. He did not say this in the book of Matthew. You know, I was just talking to someone the other day, and he was saying, he said, what? They didn't say it. I said, he didn't say it in the book of Matthew. So we have to be careful in how we read the book of Matthew. I want to say that on the side, that we're not importing John or something else here. He's, he did not say, I am the Son of God, in the book of Matthew. And so just like the crowds in verse 40, they slander him and say that he said he was the Son of God. So the word trust here as well, we have this play again on trusting. We will believe him in 42. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. So what they're claiming is that because he's rejected by their institutions, the temple and the palace, that therefore God must have rejected him. And this is the classic sin of the human being. If our institutions have condemned you, then God must have condemned you. And this is absolutely not the case, because it assumes a big thing, 
which is that God endorses your institutions. God does not endorse your church. God does not endorse your religion. God does not endorse your beliefs. God does not endorse your Congress or your White House or your Supreme Court. God endorses no one. He sent out his son to do his bidding, but the bidding was not to claim sonship. The job was not to save himself. The job was to teach and follow the will of his father to the very end. And the will of his father was to continue to teach the gospel and to teach scripture so that maybe one generation would accept the mercy that's being offered and hear this teaching without being amazed, without scratching our heads, but actually doing it and showing the acceptance and gratitude of receiving that mercy from the one who gives all life. It's such a beautiful connection, Richard. I'm so glad that we pushed the text here and took a look at the Hebrew in Psalm 22, and then you discovered this connection with El Shaddai. Matthew really is pushing this issue of God's function as mother, because the psalm is pushing the issue of God's function as mother. It's playing with it. And it really is, as they say, sticking it to the man at a time when the man is trying to stick it to the Lord. It's a really powerful text. And Jesus is going to expend his life to give life. It's very clear. It's very beautiful. It is birth-giving. It's so eloquent. It's beyond poetry in its eloquence as a text, which would be totally missed if you didn't take the time to look at the language and search out the reference. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words, because why not? Just pile on. Everyone is turning on him. Everyone is against him. That just actually emphasizes what the text of Psalm 22 is saying, to be honest. Everyone is turning against the Lord's king. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. It goes on and on. And you can see how the psalm leads directly into the destruction of Jesus on the cross. But clearly, Jesus being ridiculed by those who are of the lowest station in society, they are the ones opening their mouth against him. It just demonstrates how there are no good guys. One of the things that's just despicable about the social justice crowd, and it's infected the way that people in the church think and speak, they fetishize the poor, and they fetishize those in need, whatever kind of need it is. The outsider, the outcast, the downtrodden, as though they're the good guys. But in Scripture, they're not the good guys. In Scripture, you are commanded not to judge these two robbers. You are commanded to minister to them. You are blamed for the fact that they were forced to steal in order to feed their children, but they're still presented as people who themselves kick Jesus while he's down. So how do you make out of them something that you fetishize? This is how 
we play the game of idolatry with our human systems of justice and our institutional ideologies. In Scripture, no one is good, no, not one, and Jesus and Matthew won't even let you say that he is good. Only in Matthew, the commandment is good, the thing that you are commanded to do, because it comes from Elohim. It's very unnerving that the least of these in Matthew behave like dirtbags towards Jesus. It should be very disconcerting. Search the text and find a good man. I challenge you to find a good man in the Gospel of Matthew. There's none to be found. As the thieves pile on, and it is ironic that these people who have found themselves just as cursed and just as exposed as Jesus pile on, you know, this is the problem we have even in the United States where we have people who are just as downtrodden as others, but they say, at least we're not idiots like them. The one thing these thieves have, literally the one thing they have, is the feeling of superiority over Jesus. That is literally all they have. They have no honor. They have no respect. And they're not going to have life for much longer even. The one thing they have is that they're better than Jesus. And the mercy that Jesus shows by accepting his Father's will and still not disputing. I mean, how easy would it be to argue against these thieves? <laughs> I mean, Jesus can just say, look at yourselves. Are you in much better shape? But they can say, at least we weren't an idiot and thought that God was going to save us. At least we weren't an idiot and thought that this teaching was going to get us somewhere. At least we weren't an idiot and thought that these miracles were great if it could make somebody walk, but they can't even get themselves off a dang cross. At least we're not idiots. At least we're practical. At least we know the score. Because the thieves have the same suppositions as the elders and Pilate. That God's going to come down on the ones who are guilty and that's going to be shown and demonstrated through the punishment and judgment of human beings. They believe the same thing. So there is a true problem in this text in that any conception of God that's not purely scriptural cannot understand a God who would just let his son be on the cross dying, humiliated, and exposed hearing his cry and not saving him and not helping him, not getting him off the cross, not keeping him from suffering. But the teaching of God is not that you won't suffer. The teaching of God is that you would sanctify the suffering. I just spoke to the Dulos podcast with Holly, and I talked about Joel, how this horrible situation in Israel, when the locusts come and there is no food and everyone is starving, and the Lord says to sanctify a fast. Now, to me, when I read that, it sounds like a sick joke. They're already crying. They're already weeping. They're already fasting. There's no food. And then God says, sanctify a fast. I mean, it sounds like a sick joke. But the point is you sanctify the fast because even the suffering that God allows to happen, you sanctify to the Lord. You trust even in the suffering that he enjoins. Even the situation of destruction, it still belongs to and comes from the Lord. 
the goal of which is to teach the Lord's mercy so that we might teach mercy to the next generation. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.